For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, being justified by his grace that we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our Father, we read passages like this, and it reminds us of what we were before you saved us, before you redeemed us. We were foolish, living our own lives, not really consulting you, for you were not Lord over us. But thank you by the mercy and grace and work of the Spirit who showed us that we were morally bankrupt in your holy eyes that when we called upon Jesus in faith, he redeemed us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that our salvation is not yet completed, that a day will come when the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are alive on that day, you promised we would caught up to meet you in the air and we'll be with you always forever. But between the point of our salvation and the point of your return, help us to be faithful. Thank you that you didn't abandon us, but you sent the Spirit of God to live in us when we received Jesus as Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the helper, that you want to empower us in this new week in a fresh way. And thank you that you who gave us the Scriptures help us to understand the Word. So be our teacher today. Take the truth that is found here, illuminate to our hearts that we might understand it and apply it. Help those who have never met you to experience the convicting ministry that you promised to give where you would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And help those who are saved to care for their souls as someone cared for ours. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the epistle of James, James chapter 5. If you happen to be here for the very first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this marvelous little letter. And James, who of course is a half-brother of the Lord Jesus, he's helping us to understand what God wants and then how to apply it. He instructs us so that we can put it into practice. In many ways, this little letter is Christianity in shoe leather. And this morning, he deals with a rather delicate subject, at least in some people's thinking, and it's the subject of money and riches. Both Jesus and James reminds us that you can test a person's spirituality among other ways, by how he views and handles money and material things. I heard about a grandpa who won $5 million in the clearinghouse sweepstakes, and they were afraid to tell him because he had somewhat of a weak heart. And they thought, well, this news might just do him in, so maybe we'll get the pastor since he has a way with words. And so after lunch, they went out on the porch swing and Gradually, the pastor transitioned to the subject, and he said, Grandpa, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you won $5 million? He said, well, that would be easy. I'd give it all to the church, all of it to the church, and with that, the pastor died. <laughs> well, listen, our actions and reactions say a whole lot about our hearts and how we view money. It sounds like you have found the text. If you're new, we preach out of the Bible every week because God could care less what I think. The only authority we have is the holy, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and that's what we're reading this morning. James chapter 5, beginning now in verse 1, the Scripture is up on the screens in front of you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you 
cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, let me set the broad context and then the immediate context. Every passage of Scripture has a context. And if you take a section of Scripture out of its context, you can easily distort its meaning. If you've been with us, many of you have been reading this letter once a week. And some of you have done it every single week since we've started, though I haven't been in the book every single week. You've been reading it once a week, and you're beginning to bleed the book of James. You know it inside and out. And as you read and reread a book, you can see easily how it divides. And this epistle has three major divisions. Chapter 1 is the first section where it deals with the development of faith. And if you remember in chapter 1, he dealt with three problems. He dealt with the problem of pain. He dealt with the problem of temptation. And he dealt with the problem of not applying Scripture to your life. Then in chapter 2, under the same, uh, a, new, a new section, chapter 2, he deals with the distortion of faith. And in these three chapters, 2, 3, and 4, he shows how faith can be distorted. And so in chapter 2, he deals with our testimony as it relates to people, how we interact with different people who maybe are unlike us, as it deals with our works or the lack thereof. And then in chapter 3, our testimony is it deals with our tongue. And then finally, our tongue that should speak the wisdom that comes from above. And then in chapter 4, if you remember, he deals with three problems that we should avoid, three areas that are kind of prickly, thorny issues. First, he deals with the problem of worldliness, that God has not called his people to be worldly. By worldly, I mean ungodly, not caring about the people of the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but we are not to allow the value system of the world to pollute our lifestyle. Then in verses 11 and 12, he deals with the problem of judging, how a believer unfairly evaluates another Christian in the body of Christ. And then in verses 13 through 17, if you were here last time, he deals with the third problem, the problem of perspective. And he is encouraging us as believers to live our lives with a view of eternity. Because this life, 60, 70, 80 years at best, is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone. So chapter 1, the development of faith, chapters uh, 2 through 4, the distortion of faith, and now we turn the corner once again, and we come to chapter 5 where, as you can see on that chart, he deals with the display of faith. Let me kind of break down chapter 5. I hope to preach at least four, maybe five messages on the fifth chapter as we are in it, but so you know where we are headed in the weeks ahead. And verses 1 through 6 that we will deal with today, he deals with the subjects of possessions, what you own. Um, how are we to relate to things with a godly perspective? Then in verses 7 through 12, he returns to the subject of patience. He's already addressed this issue, but now he's going to camp on it. If you're here today and you like patience, come back next week. We will learn from God's Word, how do you develop patience? And then third, in verses 13 through 18, he moves past the economic, past the personal realm, to the realm of the physical. And so he bleeds together two things that always go together, healing and prayer. And the last two verses, 19 and 20, of course, serve as the conclusion. And this is an important chapter because, among other things, he's dealing with lukewarmness. In the end of the age, before Christ comes, the Bible teaches that the church, the body of Christ, will be typified not by a passionate zeal for Christ, but by lukewarmness. And while that may typify many, it does not have to typify you or me. Now, with God's help, let's try to unpack the first six verses. There's a note-taking outline. If you're here today for the first time, it's in your bulletin. Those of you who are online, live streaming, wherever you may be in the world, you can print it out, and uh, you can take notes as well. Now, this morning, the subject is when money talks. 
And to illustrate his point to this assembly of first century Christians, he addresses the subject of the wicked rich. And when you hear what he says about the wicked rich, it's easy to say, go get him, James, kick him in the behind, and not think that this really applies to you. But it does. Now, he's addressing folks who had a spurious confession, those who are rich fakers, so to speak. They may have professed to have known Christ, but did not really possess him. We saw that subject taken up earlier where he said that faith without works is dead, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and not by works, but the faith that saves is never alone. If we're genuinely born again, our life will change from the inside out. So know that he is dealing with these rich fakers, many of whom could care less about what he has to say. But he's describing them not for their sake so much as for our sake. Many of them might never read the epistle of James. But he uses them as an illustration to apply to us. He does the exact same thing that the Lord does many times. For instance, if you know the parable of the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12, he describes that man who amassed all these goods and what the outcome of his life was like. And then he said, therefore, I say to you, you who believe. So he uses an illustration of a lost person so that we might guard our hearts and not fall into the same trap. And so he's dealing with people who are self-centered, who are indulgent, who are guilty of materialism, and he doesn't want the church to fall into the same thing. Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's why I say there's much that we can do to evaluate our spiritual lives by just looking at the way we use what God has given to us. Remember, you don't own it. God does. When we speak of stewardship, we're saying it's 100% His, and someday we will give an account for what God has entrusted to us. So what James does is he gives us three timeless principles for us to apply as Christians. The first principle concerns the folly of stagnant wealth. The folly of stagnant wealth. How foolish it is to have much and just let it sit there where it's stagnant. And of course, when it comes to stagnant wealth, he wants us to understand something about its wail, its cry, and something about its witness. Look at verse 1. He first addresses its cry. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. When he says come now, that's a first century expression that we might paraphrase. Listen up. Get this. Pay close attention. The expression serves, among other things, too, to introduce us to a new group of people. Remember, if you were here last time in 413, he was dealing with the presumptuous fool, the fellow who said, well, we're going to go to such and such a city for such and such a period of time and make such and such a profit. And James says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're here for a moment. You're a vapor that appears and then vanishes. Well, he's moving from that group to the wicked rich. And he commands them. It's a command. Weep and howl. The word weep, clio, means to sob out loud. It's used in Scripture of someone who has a deep cry in their heart because they are wailing over someone whom they have lost. Uh, it's not some little boo-hoo. It's used in Mark chapter 5 of the synagogue official who lost his precious little daughter, and he is weeping he is mourning. It's also used in the New Testament of someone who is weeping and crying out in shame because of God's condemnation upon their life. And so he is saying, look, in light of the future, in light of where you are headed, weep and howl. Now, I think it's important to state here that it's not a sin to be rich because many of God's choicest servants in the Bible were rich. Abraham, who's called the father of the faithful, is such a person who illustrates that. In fact, James, if you remember in chapter 2, used him as an example of saving faith. And the Bible says of Abram, his name before God furthered it to Abraham in light of the promise. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. 
Think about King David. He is called a man after God's own heart. Certainly not a perfect man, but the overall direction of his life was he had a heart for God. And when God writes his obituary, the chronicler says, then he died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor. Or think about Job. He was very, very rich. And even before he lost it all and God restored his wealth twofold, before that, God said this of this man in Job 1.3, who's described as a righteous man. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So here was a man who was wealthy. He would be super rich in our day, so to speak. Think about the one who buried the Lord Jesus. One of the reasons we know that the Bible is authoritative, the only book that God ever wrote, is because of fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter of Scripture where there are dozens of prophecies enumerated concerning what will happen when the Messiah comes to die. And one of those prophecies is that there would be a rich man involved in his death. Indeed, Joseph of Arimathea was that rich man. He was a great man of God. He ended up being converted. Or think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. As you read the accounts of them in Scripture, they too had to have been rich. In fact, it's not wrong to be rich. Listen to what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 8.18. The Lord your God, for it is He who has given you power to make wealth. God doesn't give you power to do evil, but God can give you power to make wealth. In Psalm 35, we're told, the Lord be magnified, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. He delights in the prosperity of his people. Now, understand, we're not talking about prosperity theology. We're not talking about the error that T.D. Jakes and Joel Olstein and Kenneth Copeland who says it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy and, and that if you're truly spiritual, you'll be rich like they are. No, that's not what the Scripture is saying, and neither is it saying that the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell. Now, that's a popular thought. I know in our day, typically in America, we tend to divide people into three broad categories. We speak of upper class, middle class, and lower class, economically speaking. But if you study the Scripture carefully, you will discover that there are really four categories of classifications. First, you might want to jot these down. There are those who are poor without and poor within. Poor without in that they possess very little of this world's goods. And there are millions of people who struggle every single day just to survive. Really, a couple billion people who would fall into this group. Um, they are poor without, and they are poor within, and that they've never found forgiveness. They've never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The second group that you could calculate from Scripture are those who are rich without and rich within. These are individuals like an Abraham or a Job who economically are very well off, but also spiritually. They're godly men. The third group might be those who are poor without and rich within. These are people who have very little of this world's goods, but they have been born again. They have met Christ in salvation. And a lot of people sitting here or listening to me in some part of the world say, that's me, Pastor. You've got my number. And the reason we tend to always categorize ourselves that way is because we can think of someone who has much more than we do. But for most of us, at least those who are in America, you will be considered by the rest of the world to be rich. Um, and think about it. You know, we have a warm place typically to lay our head at night. We have clothing that uh, takes care of us. We have more than we can often use. We have dwellings that protect us. We've been blessed in this, Ameri in this America. And so, by the world's standards, most of the world considers the average American to be wealthy. We'll come back to that. There's a fourth category, and those are the people who are rich without and poor within. Rich without in that they have much of this world's goods, 
But oftentimes, because their wealth controls them, they never find the Lord, and they are poor within, they are spiritually bankrupt. And that's the group that James is going to focus on this morning. Now, please understand, biblically speaking, wealth is morally neutral. The question is not what do you have, but what is it that has you? Abraham was a rich man, but he maintained his faith and his character. On the other hand, think about his nephew, Lot. He too was very wealthy, but his character was deficient, though he was saved. The New Testament tells us he was a righteous man. He was saved, but he did not grow like he should have. And in the process, for the most part, he lost his family. What was the difference between rich Abraham and rich Lot? Well, it was an issue of what it was that captured their hearts. The Bible warns in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Now, you've often heard people say, well, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. But of course, the Bible never says that. It's one of the most misquoted verses in all of Holy Scripture. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's the love of money. Now, notice it says the love of money is a root. It doesn't say the root. Now, in some English translations, to smooth out the reading, we put the article there. But the article is not present in any Greek manuscript. So like in the New American Standard, in the New King James, it says it is a root meaning it's not the only source of evil, but it is certainly a major taproot for evil. And again, it's not money, but is the love of money. If you remember in the parable of the sower, a man went out and sowed seed, and Jesus likens three of the soils to unbelievers and why it is that they do not respond in faith to Christ. And then the, the one good soil representing someone who responds to the gospel. And if you remember on the third soil, it was riches that captured the man's heart. Jesus said, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So if you love money, then you would do well to pay close attention to this command this morning, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So James is dealing with this idea of stagnant wealth, and he begins to unpack it in verses 2 and 3. He moves past its cry to its witness. Let's read verse 2 and then part of verse 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now, in the New Testament era, there were basically three ways that a person would typically or could flaunt their wealth. One was food, the other was clothing, and the third was precious metals. The rich were those who ate well, they dressed well, and they spent their money lavishly. And so James introduces us to three basic ways which time and hoarding can rob a rich man of his wealth. He says here, your riches have rotted. And the word for rotted is always used, both in and outside of the Bible, of food or fruit that went bad. He's describing a man who hoards food, food that will inevitably rot. And again, it parallels the rich fool of Luke chapter 12. Remember that man, he tore down his current barns, he built larger barns so he could store all of his grains and all of his food so that he could sit back, take his ease, and eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, the day he made that statement, thinking that he had entered into this lush retirement, Jesus said he died. Now understand, nothing wrong with storing up grain or corn, but in the parable of the rich farmer, here was a man who hoarded. And that's what James is describing. Your riches have rotted, that is, they have spoiled. And the rich man, his God is gold, his creed is greed, and his motto is simply, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the rest, and poison it. And the implications on his heart are huge. 
The ramifications on his life are untold and that they can keep a man out of eternity because he lives only for the here and now. There are some people here today, uh, some people who should be here today who are not here because they're working, not because they don't have any choice, but because they want to make more money. And their priorities are all out of whack, and they consistently forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Sunday is no different from the rest of the week. Then notice in verse 2, he says, your garments have become moth-eaten. Another way a rich man would display his wealth was by his clothing. And there are different words translated for clothing, and this particular word for garment described the upper garment of the outer robe. And rich people would often make those outer garments very elaborate. They would put silver threads, sometimes even gold threads, through the clothing. They would put jewelry and embroider it very, very fancily, fancifully, and they would many times pass them down as heirlooms. And they were so valuable in the first century that they could become a form of currency. And you see that in both the Old and the New Testament. As this slide reminds us, Joseph, who became the prime minister of Egypt, uh, blessed his brothers with riches. The Bible says he gave them changes of garments. Or think about Samson. He told a riddle, and he said, if anyone can figure out my riddle, I will give him 30 linen garments. Or think about Naaman. He came to the prophet Elijah wanting to pay him with 10 changes of clothes. Or think about the apostle Paul on the negative side when he gathers the Ephesian elders together in Acts 20. He said, I coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes. What I want you to see is that rich people often wore their wealth on their sleeves. And James is saying it's foolish to do that. People do it today. You know, you see some guy who's bragging with his $2,000 pair of tennis shoes. I mean, come on now, $2,000 tennis shoes. And we have this prosperity preacher who supposedly had a $5,000 pair of tennis shoes with his Rolex watch hanging off his wrist. By the way, I have a Rolex here. Someone bought it for me in China. They paid 10 bucks for it. <laughs> in fact, I gave one to my son, and he was working in the White House at the time, and they were at this meeting around the table with Dick Cheney, and one of his first man, his right-hand man, and Cheney's right-hand man said, Jeremy, that is a really nice watch, a Rolex. And he flipped his wrist. He said, it's just like mine. Is that new? He said, yeah, my dad gave it to me for Christmas. And he said, you know, I can, can I see it? And he took it and he held it and he said, I can tell the difference between a fake one and a real one. This is the real thing. <laughs> no, it was a $10 Rolex. But what I want you to see is that even setting your heart on clothing it can become moth-eaten. I had a suit in my closet that I had not worn in a long time. You know, it was a little bit outdated. Didn't really want to throw it away yet. And then one day I thought, you know, I think I'll wear it for this occasion. And out I took it, and a moth had eaten a hole in it. Now it was good for nothing. Think about what you have in your closets. Some of us have clothing in our closet that we've not touched in five years. We have so much in this country. And sometimes we, oh, we just can't part with it. We tend to hoard. And so we have bigger boxes, bigger garages, bigger barns, and what we call self-storage units, appropriately titled. And we begin to pile up all these things. And sometimes our outward actions are really reflecting an inward reality. Finally, wealth could be measured in gold and silver. Look at verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now, please understand that the gold and silver in this day could literally rust. When I was a child, I had a coin collection, and I had this silver dollar, so to speak, from Mexico, big, just like our silver dollar. And I said to my dad, will you look at this? It's rusted, but it's supposed to be a silver dollar. And then I looked at the silver dollar he gave me, and it was a little 
tarnished, but it wasn't rusted. I said, what happened? What's the deal? He said they use a lot of alloy in theirs so that it will literally rust. Well, understand the gold and silver in James's day was not as refined as the gold and silver in our day, and under the right circumstances, it would literally rust. And so James here is exposing the futility of hoarding wealth, and he personifies it. Notice their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Do you see what he's saying? The rotten grain, the rusted gold and silver, the moth-eaten clothing will bear testimony to the selfishness of your hearts. And then he says in verse 3, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Look at that word treasure. It's the Greek word thesaurizo. You can hear our English word thesaurus from it. You know, a thesaurus is a collection of words. It comes from the Greek. Well, he's describing here a collection of things. And some people, especially the rich, collect things the way some folks collect stamps. Here are these people collecting food and clothes and precious metals, not because they need it, but just for the sake of having it. Now, remember, he's writing to the lost, most of whom, or I should say he's describing the lost, most of whom will never read this, but he's describing such people and maybe some with a spurious confession within the fellowship, but he's doing that so that those who are saved might make proper application and take inventory. And so we would do well to take inventory. You know, when my dad died in 2007, I was charged with some of my other brothers and sisters to help get rid of some of their things. Now, they lived in the same house for 50 years, and we were moving our mother to a more suitable facility that she could manage, and it was a, with the basement that was fully furnished, and then there was three floors over it. We had four stories of stuff. We didn't really need most of this stuff. I mean, if you already have a couch, why do you need another couch? You don't need another bed. And so we sold most all that stuff. And I said to myself, and I said to Audrey, look, if the Lord doesn't take us before the rapture, I don't want our kids to go through all this stuff. I don't want them to open some drawer just filled with stuff and have to clean out our house. So we emptied out our attic. You can walk into my attic. There was a time you couldn't walk into it. Now it's empty. Throw it up in the attic. Get it out of the way. Now it's empty. Some of us, if we haven't used an asset in 10 years, we're not going to use it in the next 10 years. And we would be wise either to sell it and invest it for the kingdom or just to do something with it. So James is dealing with this attitude of ruthless greed. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. That's their attitude. It's the attitude of covetousness. Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the rich farmer? He preceded his illustration with this command, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. He's talking about greed. And if you read Colossians 3 and verse 5, it reminds us that greed or covetousness, same word used in Jesus' parable, there translated covetousness, is idolatry. When we catalog sins, we say, well, you know, homosexuality, that's really bad. And adultery, that's really bad. And premarital sex, that's really bad. And drunkenness and drug abuse, that's really bad. And, you know, arson, that's a wicked sin. But the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. You say, well, that's the 10th commandment. It may be the last one, but if you go home and think your way through it, the root of the other nine is found in the last one. You shall not covet. And it is an important commandment, and it causes people to typically break the other nine. Now, James is not talking about a businessman who's investing. The Bible does not necessarily condemn investing the goods that God has given you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 27, that great parable? He said, well, you should have, you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Nothing wrong with investing. When you read the parables of Christ or any word that he spoke, he only uses truth to teach truth. 
He never uses error to teach truth. He uses truth to teach truth. So he's not using an erroneous action. Nothing wrong with necessarily investing. In fact, there's nothing wrong necessarily with saving. The Bible admonishes us to save. Learn a lesson from the ant, Proverbs 6 reminds us. In time of plenty, the Israeli ant that you can study in our day, different from our fire ants, uh, those cursed things that came from South America and rubber tires. They attacked me this week. I must have gotten 10 bites on my right arm here. You don't want to see it this morning. In either case, you know, the ant, the Israeli ant, in time of plenty would store goods so that in time of need, she would have something. Now, understand, of course, there's more than one kind of wealth that the Bible speaks of. And I'm sure maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and say, well, I'm not guilty of hoarding. In fact, I have too much month at the end of my money. How can I hoard, pastor? And sometimes we need to step back and say, well, what am I doing with what God has given me? What kind of witness do the material possessions that I have, what kind of testimony do they give to a lost world? Do you give to God's work? That's something the Christian is commanded to do on the first day of every week. Or do you hoard what God has given you? Or do you give your leftovers instead out of the first of your wealth? Look, if you were arrested and someone had to examine your faith based on your checkbook and the way you gave to the work of the Lord, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be, would there be enough evidence in your checkbook for you to be found guilty? Listen, this is a very subtle thing. He's dealing with lost, wicked, rich people to get the attention of the righteous. And be careful not to look down on the rich man when we in turn might be holding back. Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century when he was leading that great country was told, there's no silver left to mint any more coins. And Cromwell responded, no silver at all? They said, well, the only silver left in our country is the silver that is covering the saints and the churches, those statues. He said, then melt down the saints and put them into circulation. And that's what needs to be done with some of us. Some of God's saints need to be melted down by the Spirit of God and put into circulation. There's all kinds of talents that God has given us, not just monetary, but if you've been saved on your spiritual birthday, He gave you a spiritual gift. And He expects you to use one of some 16 gifts that are operable today in the body of Christ in the local assembly. Some of you don't even go to church anywhere. You're not a member of a New Testament Bible-believing church. You should be. Because not to is to be disobedient. Of course, if you've never received Christ, that's your bigger need. Coming to church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage will make you an automobile. You need to receive Christ as your Lord. But whatever God has put in your hands, put it to work. Look again at verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness, a testimony against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It's a bit of irony here if you think about it. They had saved and hoarded these things for who? For themselves. But the Scripture says the fire will consume, or you could translate it, eat, your flesh. They had saved it for themselves, but what they had saved was actually speaking against themselves. And of course, he's using imagery as he already has and as it's used throughout the New Testament to describe the place of eternal retribution. You say, you think God is going to send people to a literal hell? You better believe it. Now, understand, hell was never created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. And if you go to hell, you'll be trespassing. And God wishes none to perish but for all to come to repentance. But if you go to hell, it will be because you rejected God's provision so you would not have to go there. And, of course, it describes here you're being consumed with fire. Now, sadly, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witness say, yeah, you're consumed, you're annihilated. A man, maybe a wicked man, goes to hell for a second, and he's obliterated, and that's the end. No, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. 
The consumption that the Bible speaks of is that when Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he shall deal out eternal retribution to those who do not know God. And the word for eternal retribution is the same adjective to describe the eternal God or eternal life. To say that God is not eternal, then you might conclude hell is not forever. And if you remember that rich man who died and went to hell, why did he go to hell? Because he was rich? No. Because he was unbelieving. Remember, under the old covenant, when a person died, he went to Sheol. The Greek word is Hades, but the Hebrew word is Sheol. And there were two compartments to Sheol, unrighteous Sheol and righteous Sheol. The unbeliever went to unrighteous Sheol. And the rich man who died, he was in Hades, unrighteous Sheol, and he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Righteous Sheol, where Old Testament saints went, was emptied out, Ephesians tells us, at the ascension of Christ. So today when you die, if you're saved, absent from the body, present with the Lord, if you're lost, you go to unrighteous Sheol, termed in the New Testament, Hades. And someday... Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But here is a man who's in hell because of his unbelief. His wealth had captured him. And he pleads with Father Abraham that somehow he could have a warning to his brothers. Send Lazarus, who's in that righteous place, to go warn our brothers. And Jesus in that parable says, and besides all this, between us and you, There is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. It's a reminder hell is forever when we study the revelation, the false prophet and the antichrist, two living human beings. They're not supernatural people. They're normal everyday people who give themselves to the evil one. They are cast into the lake of fire at the second coming, and at the end of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah, Satan is then cast into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist are. In other words, they're still there a thousand years later because when a man dies and goes to hell, he is there forever. And so notice, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. In this context, James is teaching that there is a time of future judgment when their gold and silver will be as worthless as rusted iron. And he uses this term, the last days. That's a term every Christian should know. The last days, according to Acts 2, began on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when that miracle happened, we studied it some weeks back, where they spoke all these different languages, real languages that they had never learned before, and not just the languages, but the dialects. Peter stood up and he said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. And so as we will come to this fifth chapter, we're going to see that James, like all the New Testament writers, speaks of the imminent return of Christ. That is, Christ could come back today. Nothing has ever needed to take place prophetically for Jesus to come back. He could come back today. His return is imminent. Now, the second coming, when he comes back to the earth and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, that is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of prophecy are yet to be fulfilled. I was doing a funeral on Tuesday, and I reminded them of an individual who said to me, I I, I wish we lived in biblical times. And I said to that gentleman, we are living in biblical times. We are seeing prophecy in our lifetime being fulfilled. The end of time prophecy that will drive the second coming will be like the days of Noah, days of ongoing violence, lawlessness, sexual immorality, and the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion, transgenderism, and homosexuality. And the super sign that God gives in Scripture is He would gather the Jews at the end of time before the second coming of Messiah back into Israel. God is at work. And you almost have to be blind if you know your Bible even a little bit. Christ could come at any moment, and that's why I would say that we are in the last 
of the last days. But understand, he is writing about the rich man so that the saved man would not have the same kind of attitude, that we might be careful to protect our hearts, that our testimony might be good and pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's the folly of stagnant wealth. Secondly, on your outline, the outcry of sinful wealth. The outcry of sinful wealth. Notice verse 4 here in this chapter. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James now moves on from hoarding wealth to getting wealth the wrong way. The wicked rich were not only guilty of hoarding, but they were also guilty of sinfully acquiring their wealth. They were guilty of defrauding the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. Now, remember, back in Bible times in Israel, there was no labor unions, no labor laws, no one to protect you. And many times, if you had a bad boss, you just took it on the chin. So here is this rich landowner and this poor man who needs a place to work, and he has no place to work, but this rich man who will hire him. And of course, in that day, you would be paid on a daily basis. And so this man who had mowed the rich man's field, and the tense of the verb is it was completed, meaning he had done what he was asked to do. He had completed his work, and yet the text says here, his pay was withheld. Maybe the landowner made up some kind of technicality. Well, you got here late, or you didn't work quite hard enough. I didn't see enough sweat on your brow. I don't like the exact way you plowed those furrows, or I'm just not going to pay you today. And please understand, if this man was not paid, it was a great hardship. And again, this is how it took place, and that's why Jesus can tell a parable in Matthew 20. Most of you know this parable. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Jesus said in this parable, because at this time in history, payday was not someday, payday was every day. And it was necessary for your survival to buy the food, to sustain the family. Put out on your margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. Let me read to you what Moses said. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it become sin in you. Or listen to Leviticus 19, 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You know, when I was 11 years old, I spent two weeks cleaning up this man's yard, trimming the trees, all the hedges, cutting the lawn, weeding all the, the beds, and it was time for payday. He said, we'll come back tomorrow. And he put me off for two weeks. And in the heart of an 11-year-old boy, it certainly was not an issue of survival like the people in James's day, but I felt maybe just an inkling of what these folks were feeling. And let me say parenthetically, I am embarrassed as a pastor when I hear of a born-again Christian who has not paid a debt that they owe. And of course, that's why leadership in the church must be qualified. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, that is, with unbelievers. That's why when we look for leaders in the church, elders, deacons, whatever form of leadership, we want to make sure their testimony in terms of Paying debts is pure. It's a terrible thing when we lose our testimony over money. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. So he's describing the rich man who hires these laborers who've completed their work, but they have not been paid. It has been withheld. That's a sad thing. He is cheating these people. He is ripping these people off. He is defrauding them. By the way, this same truth is underscored in Romans 13 and verse 8. There the apostle Paul says, owe nothing to anyone 
Now, let me say parenthetically, while debt is certainly discouraged in Scripture, if you've taken my financial course, and those who are interested, it's not for the weary. It's like 130 pages long at searchthescriptures.org. Sometimes people use Romans 13 and verse 8 as a proof text to say you should never take a loan. You should never take a mortgage. A church should never go into a building program. Well, we know all building, all barring is not wrong. How do we know that? Because God said in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 12 that if Israel obeyed him, he would make them the lender rather than the borrower. So God doesn't bless them to do sin. He only blesses them for obedient action. And so when Paul says, owe nothing to anyone, he uses a tense of a verb that means don't keep on owing a debt that should be paid. And contextually, of course, he's dealing with a man's taxes. You owe your tax to the government, pay it. You owe it to them because the government, whether it's the police or army, are God's ministers to protect us from evil. And people can rank on the police in our day and talk down cops. But I tell you, we don't want to live in a county where the police are not honored. I was at a stoplight the other day, and I saw this police officer. It was late at night. I was coming home about 10 o'clock, and I rolled down my window, and I kind of waved, and she rolled down her window, and I said, thank you for what you do. We need you. And a big smile came across her face. We pay our taxes because the principal role of government is to protect us, whether it's through the army or through the police. But owe nothing to anyone. And let me say while we're here, getting wealth through other wrong means is also displeasing to the Lord, even if you tithe the profit. And so if you're in the ungodly liquor business, whether through a convenience store or a bar room, and you're helping to make people high, woe to you who makes your neighbor drunk. That's what God says. Woe to you who makes your neighbor drunk. It's one of the woes God puts in Scripture. Look, you can illegitimately attain money through gambling or through the porn industry. People have become billionaires by selling perversion. And that is a wicked thing. But if you are an employer, you are to give an adequate wage. I always want to err on the side of being generous with the people who work under me. I don't want them to feel ripped off. I look at every dollar that is given to this church as hard-earned sweat, blood, money. I don't want to waste 15 cents of it. But neither do I want to be guilty of giving people a proper compensation. Some people read this text, well, I've never ripped off the First National Bank. I must be okay. But we can be unfair with people when we need to be generous. Verse 4, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out. The pay of the laborers cries out. It's the Greek word krazo. It's used in one passage where Jesus casts out a demon and the demon comes out shrieking, crying out. Then it came out shrieking, same verb as James uses, in convulsing him violently. It's used in Matthew 27, 33, of the multitudes who asked for Christ's crucifixion. Why, what evil has he done, Pilate asked. But they kept crazo, crying out, shouting, crucify him. And the verb is used when you want to emphasize a cry. And here, the cry of these laborers who had been ripped off, it's reaching the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, just like the blood of Abel reached into the ears of God. Our God is the Lord of Sabaoth, or Sabbath, if you want to say it. The word sabaoth is a Greek word that we don't really translate so much, but we just transliterate. We take the sound and put it into English. But the thought is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. One of these days, God's mighty armies are going to come back, and He is going to make every right, every wrong right, and the unbelieving world is going to stand in judgment before Him. 
So James is condemning the man who hoards and the man who defrauds. Now quickly, and we'll be finished, the doom of selfish wealth. Beyond the folly of stagnant wealth and the doom and the outcry of sinful wealth, there's the doom of selfish wealth. Stagnant wealth, sinful wealth, selfish wealth. Look at verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now remember, again, he's describing the unbelieving rich and he's making application to first century believers and by extension, all of us. These were people who were hoarding, who were ripping people off. They were engaged in self-indulgence. And you see it both in their wantonness and their wickedness. Notice, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. We don't use wanton so much today. What does that really mean? It means luxuriously. It means for your own pleasure. One translation says, you have led a life of luxury and self-indulgence. We might paraphrase it. You've lived high off the hog. You've lived like a pig. You've squandered it all when some of it could have been used for others. Again, he's describing a person who is only living to gratify himself. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. It's a frightening picture. There were rich pigs, and they were fattening their greedy hearts for a coming day of judgment. Now, remember, who is he writing to? The first verse, I spent a whole sermon on it to the 12 tribes who were scattered, the diaspora. They were scattered like seed. Why were they scattered? Because of persecution. Because Jews had embraced Jesus as Lord, and they were run off from their homes, and they were scattered throughout Israel and through the empire. And now, think about it. Here are these Jews, these diaspora, living in different cities who are going to read this letter. And there are all these rich people who are ripping off these Jewish believers. And it seems like they're on the wrong side. You know, I mean, we've been thrown out of our homeland and our own houses, and now we're not being paid. Like, where are you, Lord? What's going on? Jeremiah had that feeling within. He records in Jeremiah 12, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow, and they bear fruit. You are always on the lips, on their lips, but far from their hearts. Job struggles with the same issue. He asks the same question. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Asaph, the psalmist, asks the question. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And it's natural to wonder, why does God seem so gracious and merciful to people whose hearts are hard and stubborn stubborn and, and evil? God repeatedly through Scripture says, you must take the long view. Whether it's James or Jeremiah or Job or Jesus, It's easy to miss the ultimate fate of the lost. It's easy for it to escape your notice that God is a God of justice. Forget this social justice movement of our day that is nothing more than Marxism. I'm talking about true biblical justice, and it never, ever escapes the notice of God Almighty. These self-promoting, self-indulging, self-centered, unrepentant, wicked, rich people We're going to meet God. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, led a life of want and pleasure, but you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Yes, their money was talking. It looked like they were getting away with it, but their money was actually speaking against them. It was condemning them. Verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, in this case, the wealthy often had political power in the first century. Think about it. They controlled the courts. We already saw that in James chapter 2. He asked the rhetorical question, is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Yes, it is. They could easily pay people off. They could easily bribe folks. And so when you had your case in court, you were rich, you typically won. 
And in some cases, you were executed. He uses this word, put to death. It's the word for murder. There was different kinds of murder in the first century. There was certainly judicial murder where you could go to court, be found guilty, and you were executed. Or you could be found right for your wicked behavior, and that man who had put in an honest 12-hour day was not paid. He gave you the best of his strength. He was either not paid or underpaid, and he began to get weak and sick, and so he died prematurely. But that's what people will do sometimes for money. They'll do anything to increase the almighty buck. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Three applications as we close off our time. Three timeless lessons. Number one, God is concerned with our attitude towards riches. God is concerned about our attitude towards riches. This passage deals not so much with actual wealth, but the attitude towards that wealth. And some people may be sitting here today, Pastor, you did a good job. Go get those rich people. And I fear maybe you've missed the point that James has. Remember, most of the folks in the early church were not rich, not many mighty, not many noble. That was the exception, 1 Corinthians 1 indicates. And really, it's the exception today where you visit the body of Christ in different countries of the world. Most of those folks are not rich. In fact, the median household, in, the median annual household income as of last year worldwide is $9,733. In America, though, it's $43,585. So you can say, well, he's not talking about me. I'm not rich. And our brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world say, you don't know how rich you are. So we need to ask ourselves, am I selfish with what I have, or am I using it for the kingdom and the glory of God? The problem, sadly, with some of us, though, is that if God has blessed us with good things, we're covered over in guilt. But don't forget what we studied in James 1.17, every good and perfect thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. One of the reasons America is so great and prosperous and wealthy is because we acknowledge God as a nation. And God blessed us because we led in carrying the gospel of His Son for 150 years across the planet. But now we have no need for God. And we are calling good evil and evil good. We're calling little boys little girls and little girls little boys. We've got an upside-down, depraved, reprobate mind. And we're spending money we don't have. And if the Bank of America was right last week, we are headed towards hyperinflation. I'm telling you, sooner or later, the whole thing's going to crumble. But if God has given you something... If he gave it to you, listen to these words, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Oh, you know, I'm a big shot because I have so much. Don't be conceited. What you have, you know, and I always warn our young people when we bring them to countries, I said, it's going to be easy for you to be conceited. You're going to see poverty like you've never seen it. Don't be conceited. He speaks of the uncertainty of riches because someday it's all going to burn. But we're to fix our hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Hey, look, if God gave you something, you don't have to apologize for it. Oh, you know, I got this on sale. It was such a deal. didn't matter if you got it on sale. If God didn't want you to have it, it didn't matter if you got it on sale. But if God wanted you to have it, enjoy it to the hilt because he blessed you with it. Proverbs says, do not worry yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Secondly, God is not only concerned with our attitudes towards riches, God is concerned with our investment in eternity, with our investment in eternity. James is reminding us really how life is so temporal Look, how do you measure your success? By how much money you make, by the title you have, by the fame you've acquired, 
by the car you drive, by the security of your retirement fund. I mean, what will it mean if Christ doesn't come and you live to be an old man or woman and you're rocking on that front porch? What will it mean that you have lived a life of significance? I can tell you it won't be the way the world measures it. But if you've laid up treasure in heaven, it will mean something. The saying is true. You've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. You can't take it with it. You, how much did he leave? He left it all. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can lay up treasure in heaven. And that's what the Lord admonishes us to do. Jesus said in Luke 16 and verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourself by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness. So you could say worldly riches that when it fails, because sooner or later it will, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You remember that, the parable of the unrighteous steward? And Jesus spoke of this unrighteous steward and how he made all these temporal friends so that when he lost his job, they would embrace him. And Jesus said, I want you to be shrewd like that dude, but in a different way. I want you to use unrighteous mammon to make eternal friends that when you step into heaven, there'll be a welcoming committee there because of the way you used your money for the kingdom of God. Lay up treasure in heaven. And let me just say parenthetically, in the 43 years I've been in ministry, I've seen some people who have been passionate. They study the Word of God. They pray for God's work, for their family. They're raising their kids for Christ. They're giving to the work of the Lord. They're sharing their faith. And then somewhere along the line, they go cold. And they are described like the people in Laodicea where Jesus said, they said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But in reality, Jesus said, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And you know what I've learned by observation? That for many of those people, the point of departure is they stopped giving to the work of the Lord. Oh, they just skipped a tithe one week and then it became two weeks then it became a month. You know, we say it in the political realm, follow the money. It's true in the spiritual realm. And many times, the point of departure deals with the issue of money. Finally, God is concerned with the unjust acts of the unsaved. He's concerned with the unjust acts of the unsaved. He illustrates here with the unrighteous rich... And it reminds us that every unrighteous act that the lost man commits will be brought into account someday if he doesn't receive Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand the text. No one will ever go to hell because he's rich. The only reason he goes to hell is because he's an unbeliever. And in the case of the rich person, it's most of the time because his riches possess him and he doesn't really possess his riches. And God doesn't care if you're rich or you're poor. If you've never received Christ, you're just as lost. And your greatest need, my greatest need, is to be rich within, which is why Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. For just a moment, forget your bank account, forget your home, forget your cars, forget all that you have. And take account of your soul. If Christ came in the next 10 seconds, do you know that he would take you? You can never earn that righteousness. The gift of God is eternal life, but you can receive it if you will yield to him as Lord and Savior. Now, our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that you have given us to study on this Lord's Day. Thank you for those who've come who have a heart to hear, who are hungry, not clock watchers, but those who are hungry to learn truth and to apply it. So help us to do some personal inventory this week about what you've entrusted to us if we know you. And for those who've never met you, help them to know that Christ died for them, that he bled and took all the punishment for their sin that if they will call upon the resurrected Lord in faith, he will give them the gift of eternal life and they will never be the same. We love you, our Father, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.